0: Little honey bees flying around. Little green peas from the ground. Buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to TNC farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop black and candy stripes. Look at them loading down those vines. Bring it to TNC farm table. Bring it to Tennessee Farm- table.
1: Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. And today we are setting the table with a brand new book, The Creative Vegetable Gardener, written by a Tennessee author, Kelly Smith-Trimble, 60 Ways to Cultivate Joy, Playfulness, and Beauty, Along with a Bounty of Food. In this time of year, a bunch of us are itching to get our hands in the dirt, and we're thinking about how we're going to lay out our gardens, and this book is right in time. This book offers a bit of a different take on backyard gardening, encouraging us to rethink the rules of vegetable gardening, breaking out of perfectly straight rows or boxy raised beds. She suggests planting in circles, spirals, or labyrinths, and encourages us to grow herbs and flowers with our vegetables, and even mixing perennials with annuals, and creating a meditative sanctuary and a pollinator paradise. Kelly Smith Trimble is author of vegetable gardening wisdom. She's been a lifestyle editor for over 20 years. She has worked with HGTV, Southern Living, Lowe's, Bonnie Plants, and the National Park Foundation. A master gardener with degrees in English and environmental studies, she grows vegetables, herbs, and flowers in her backyard in Knoxville, Tennessee. And a note, Kelly does not advertise on this show. So let's join Kelly right now and hear about this new book, The Creative Vegetable Gardener. I know you pretty well, but our listeners might not. Mm -hmm. Will you let them know the scope of what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. Well, so I work full-time as an editorial director,
2: and I... um, also have written two vegetable gardening books on the side um the first one is called vegetable gardening wisdom and then this one is the creative vegetable gardener i garden in my backyard in knoxville and i am married to my husband derek he actually was the photographer for the majority of this book Um, and then we have one dog rufus and we also love hiking and kayaking and we just love Enjoying these beautiful mountains we get to call home.
1: Well, you've got a rich background writing for Southern living Bonnie plants Mm -hmm. um, Lowe's I mean, you know plants
2: Yeah, yeah Well, Mm -hmm. you know, you can think you know plants, but there's always more to learn that's one of the best things about gardening and and just Experiencing nature Mm -hmm. is there's so much there. There's so much richness and Mm -hmm. um, You'll never know it all which is great it is but yeah I have gotten the opportunity to work with a lot of um, you know big recognizable brands and
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, awesome people at those places so.
1: you mentioned Rufus do you mind it brag a little bit about Rufus
2: <laughs> <laughs> not at all um, it's funny I actually you know Rufus is he's an Australian Shepherd and he's he just turned six um, and he is just a sweet dog and um, he is always in the garden with me so there's a couple of photos in the book where Rufus is actually in the photos. And then when I um, went to write the acknowledgements, I just couldn't leave him out. So I think I wrote in the <laughs> acknowledgements, you know, you'll never read this because you're a dog. But, <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> I, I just that. he's just
2: a source of joy out there. So um,
1: that's our dog, Rufus. Can we talk a little bit about your family so people kind of get to know you? A little sure, sure. The dedication to this book. I just thought it was just lovely. Well, thank you. Yes. Do you mind to read it and share that with us?
2: Sure. It says, To my parents for telling me to go and play outside. You nurtured my creative spirit and love of nature, and I'm forever grateful.
1: Not every parent does that.
2: Yeah, I have just been, you know, again, very fortunate. I have great parents. I grew up in Athens, Tennessee, so just down the road, halfway between Knoxville and Chattanooga we had some acreage, you know, we weren't like way out in the woods or anything, but enough space to safely, you know, play outside Mm -hmm. with not supervised all the time. And I'm just really grateful for that. You know, that was something I don't think a lot of kids get, Mm -hmm. um, especially now. So Mm -hmm. I was very um, grateful to have that. And I just remember you know it wasn't anything specific my parents did garden but we didn't actually have a vegetable garden my mother was really into um, wildflowers and you know we had they were always um, working outside but it wasn't that we just specifically had a vegetable garden but i was just encouraged to go outside you know we we had tv but it wasn't you know something we centered our lives around tv and computers and things like that we had them all but it wasn't it wasn't the end-all be-all and I, I do think there would be days where I would kind of get sucked into you know laying on the couch and watching tv and my dad would say Kelly you know just go outside and so I would and it, there was a lot of unstructured play time mm-hmm. you know where it wasn't go outside and do this task it was just go outside and play
1: mm-hmm. and
2: I really see the value in that now you know.
1: Mm-hmm. I just think that's so touching and lovely your dedication to them and what that meant to you mm-hmm. and what that means to all of us listening
2: yeah one of the things i remember doing and i will still do it now and it just like really kind of incites that joy of childhood is just to to when the clover comes up i love to pick the clover flowers and make a um flower crown with those and there are pictures of me with a little clover flower crown as a child and i will still do it today and make my own little flower crown and um you know i've learned how valuable clover is now you know a lot of people think of it as a weed but it's um, just a valuable forage plant for the bees it's um, it's beautiful it's good for the soil so you know there's a lot to these little memories that I think I have of that time just playing outside
1: how fun mm-hmm. well you know what maybe each and every one of us sitting here listening should make a point this spring to make ourselves a flower crown. I think they should.
2: And then, like I mentioned, my husband Derek shot the majority of the photography for this book, which is absolutely beautiful. And it's, it's funny how over the years he has really become a gardening expert, too. You know, I think it's funny. I'll hear people ask questions and he has the answer, you know. Oh, I love um, that. So he, he's definitely integral to the garden as well. He is such a good photographer. He is definitely an amazing photographer. He is. We photographed a lot in our own garden, but then there's also 10 um, features, profiles of other gardeners all over the country in the book. We we wrote and produced this during the pandemic it was 2021 mostly spring and summer of 2021 and so i couldn't necessarily we couldn't both travel everywhere he did travel to some of the sites to to photograph him but he had to kind of just be on his own you know i would do the research beforehand but he would go and Mm -hmm. there's a lot to it that um like most things there's a lot more to it than it appears (laughs) and he just did such a, a great just beautiful job and um So I'm really proud of him for this book, too.
1: Let's talk about rules.
2: Yeah, let's talk about rules.
1: rules. (laughs) (laughs) On the back of this book, you say, free yourself from the rules. Can you expand on that, please? Yeah.
2: You know, a lot of um, what I'm talking about in this book is different ways to grow beyond, I think, conventional wisdom. So a way to to frame that became let's talk about what these rules are and and how you can break them a lot of them aren't necessarily actual rules you know they're just things that people get in their head you know if i do this then this will occur and growing a garden you know, there's a lot of forces outside of yourself that are, are coming into to play, you know, you're you're dealing with nature, you know, so you're not able to just have a one to one relationship with what you do and what you're going to get out of it. So anyway, I think a lot of the rules that are discussed in the book are things that I find people have in their head, like the things they have to do. And a lot of it comes from a gardening approach that is really based on agriculture, I think, and on conventional agriculture. You know, the the really like the visual representation of this, I think, is this idea of like these perfectly straight rows. You know, so part of the book, we talk about growing outside the lines or growing outside the box. And that is both a a true statement and a metaphor for you know going outside of conventional wisdom so you know we have this idea of this these like beautiful perfectly straight rows or perfectly um, formed boxes that that's what a vegetable garden should look like it should be like and in reality that's based on a different type of growing that's not based on the backyard garden and what it ha- needs to be. So so I kind of wanted to just get people to think about what else a vegetable garden could look like and could be like. So that's a lot of what that rule section is about is just saying, okay, you think you have to do this. You think you have to rotate your crops, you know, perfectly, but you were growing in a four by six bed, you know, how are you going to rotate your crops every year? So good point. a little bit of, that, of it is just... I guess easing people's uh fears about mm-hmm. vegetable gardening and, and telling them that it's not so strict, it's not so regimented.
1: I actually still struggle with that myself about how I'm gonna design it. I try to companion plant mm-hmm. and it gets really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um and where what's gonna be next to what and a lot of times I'm not fast enough with everything and then my seeds from last year start growing and I don't have the heart to mow them over. <laughs> well I mean that's okay. Yes. I think that's
2: what I what I wanted to tell people is that's okay. You know <laughs> I think a lot of us think that everything's already been figured out and if we just follow the formula then we'll... that's not the fun part of, of gardening. It's not uh-huh. the fun part, to mm-hmm. me at least, of growing <laughs> food. It's the experimentation and trying things out and um, And just rolling with what happens naturally. I mean, that doesn't mean you just, you know, let cabbage worms eat all of your cabbages. But if you have some volunteer plants from last year, I mean, let them grow. See what they are. Yes. You know, and that makes Mm -hmm. that you learn something from that. You may learn a new companion planting pair that, you know, other people aren't talking about. Very true. I mean, people people figured out companion planting by experimenting, Mm -hmm. not because someone told them what it was. So,
1: Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's part of the process. Well, and there's nothing happier than a plant that's decided for itself where it wants to grow. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And today we are setting the table with a brand new book. It's called The Creative Vegetable Gardener, written by Tennessee author Kelly Smith-Trimble. 60 Ways to Cultivate Joy, Playfulness, and Beauty Along with a Bounty of Food. After a short break from our sponsor, we'll talk with Kelly about the chapters in her book on soil and different gardening practices. Support for the Tennessee Farm Table comes to you in part by Blue Stem Hollow, a sustainable farm and event space for weddings, family reunions, and company picnics located in Greenback, Tennessee. Blue Stem Hollow offers catering, pasture-raised beef, eggs, charcuterie, and sustainably raised fruits and vegetables. Blue Stem Hollow is now in full swing of their CSA sign-up for full and half shares, delivered weekly or bi-weekly. These fruits and vegetables are sustainably raised right on the farm, and each week's CSA box includes an email on what's in the box, along with a video from Chef Robert Allen, formerly of Citico, with seasonal cooking tips for what's in the box. They also offer weekly add-ons such as honey, desserts, eggs, charcuterie, and pasture-raised beef. Weekly delivery locations include Greenback, Maryville, and Knoxville. More information for the CSA, bluestemhollow.com or by email, Brenna, at bluestemhollow.com. I wanted to let you know about kelly smith Trimble's book launch union avenue books in downtown knoxville presents a launch party with kelly smith Trimble in honor of her newest title the creative vegetable gardener and kelly and myself will be there and uh, we'll be carrying on a conversation which i will be recording This event will take place on the book's release date, February the 28th, 2023, at 517 Union Avenue in downtown Knoxville at 530 p.m. While this is a free event, they do ask that you register for your spot at the link on their website. And a note, Kelly Smith Trimble and Union Avenue Books do not advertise on this show. Okay, let's join back up with Kelly Smith-Trimble right now and hear more about soil and different gardening practices. Soil. Mm -hmm. In a part of your book, you write about the soil food web. Could you tell us more about that soil food web? Sure.
2: So the soil food web, you may remember from, you know, seventh grade biology class or something. Um, You know, it's really this diagram of how things we put in the soil are decomposed and become a part of the soil. Really the soil food web is just a a way of talking about the soil ecosystem and thinking about the soil itself as its own ecosystem. And that's something that um, as an organic gardener, you really start to learn about. One of the kind of key tenets of organic gardening is to feed the soil, not feed the plants because the soil will feed the plants. So what you need to think about first really is like feeding and nurturing that soil ecosystem because that's what your plants are growing in and the soil will provide the food for the plants. So that's really what we're getting at when we're thinking about the soil in terms of the garden. And the soil is like we have to think about the soil actually being alive. It's not this static thing. was thinking about this earlier and you know you can look out on like the ocean or a lake and think it's just water but it's not just water there's all kinds of things there's all kinds of life teeming in there that's um Mm -hmm. supporting one another you know something is providing food for another and um and so if we can think about the soil like that too that's exactly the situation where we look at it and we think oh it's just dirt it's like inert matter but it's not there's a whole ecosystem in the soil that is um, really important to feeding plants that feed us. So supporting the soil is a big part of gardening. Um, a lot of times we just take too much from it without giving enough back.
1: You yeah. Know, so. What are some of the ways you help build soil?
2: Um, I use a lot of compost yes. to add back in and mm-hmm. I do make my own compost, but I also buy it. Uh-huh. Um, and so, adding that is adding nitrogen back to the soil. Yeah. Um, I have started when I clean up the garden or clean things out from the garden, leaving the roots intact. Really. Um, not always, you know. Uh-huh. And if you had a diseased plant or something, you wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. want to do that. But roots are there, you know, opening up the soil, creating pathways for water and air to move. Yeah. And if you can leave some of those roots in there, then Um, especially over the winter Mm -hmm. then they can you know keep the that structure Mm -hmm. in place and help prevent erosion Mm -hmm. Um, and they will over time decompose and add more organic matter to the soil Mm -hmm. so that's something I've kind of started in the last couple years with bean plants you know just cut them off at the at the base rather than pulling the roots all the way out so that's you know that's one
1: thing you can do I've always liked that mushroom compost yeah do you use that
2: I have used it um, so the mushroom compost is the growing medium that mushroom farmers use mm-hmm. to grow mushrooms you know in usually I think um, inside farms you know mm-hmm. um, and so it's a pretty dry uh, medium mm-hmm. um, I think it's great for soil. It can like dry your soil out a little bit. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've had that experience, um, but it's basically like once the mushroom farming, once they've you know grown uh, a crop in that medium, they'll take it in and re- resell it as mushroom compost. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually. I think some people think it's actually mushrooms composted, but it's it's not. I think it's a good soil amendment. Uh-huh. I don't use it as much because my soil does tend to dry out, so I use cow compost. Oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. cow manure, and I do. I just buy it at the store, mm-hmm. um, and I've used some other different kinds too. But mm-hmm. um, that black cow bagged cow compost is it works really well for me.
1: A topic you mentioned was growing more ecological vegetable gardens. Mm-hmm. Yeah I think people don't often
2: think about a vegetable garden you know as an ecosystem or thinking about it from an ecological standpoint um, but I try to get people try to encourage people to do that and one thing one of the uh, kind of rules that we talk about in the book is um, is that idea that you need to plant kind of comes from the agricultural model of you know a whole row or a whole field of one plant so that's a a monoculture and a more ecological approach is to grow a polyculture so to grow rather than having you know a whole um, area or a whole bed of just one plant you want to grow multiple plants together and um, you know a lot of people learned vegetable gardening with the square foot gardening method which I think was great to get people into the garden but it definitely had that really you know rigid approach of thinking about one plant in one square. And um, a more ecological and more based on polyculture approach is to grow multiple things together. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's more what you're talking about with companion planting, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking about different plants growing together. And that's Really, how plants grow in nature. You know, rarely do you see a monoculture in nature. I think in the book I gave the example of of like pine plantations. You know, all through um, the deeper south, we see just like rows and rows and rows and rows of, of pine, and that's not a natural forest. You know, when you are thinking about designing your plants and you're thinking about putting in your garden. Um, you can think more about natural ecosystems than about those agricultural ecosystems when you're putting things together. So that means growing annuals and perennials together. A lot of times you'll be told to keep perennials separate from annuals, and there are reasons why that could be good, but I kind of am encouraging people to mix them in together. Um, And also to grow, you know, flowers with your vegetables, which we know attracts pollinators. So um, that's that is kind of the beginning mindset of a more ecological approach. I also talk about people are really interested in growing for pollinators and growing for wildlife. Yes. Um and growing native plants, all of which I'm a huge fan of, but I don't think that the vegetable garden has to be separate from those things. You know, I think that you can incorporate those ethics and those methods in the vegetable garden too, you know, mm-hmm. so you can try to grow some native food plants. You can grow herbs and vegetables together. You can grow plants that you would grow to attract pollinators right next to your vegetables, which is the perfect thing to do because then you're bringing the pollinators to your vegetables to pollinate them as well. So that's kind of what we're talking about when we think about a more ecological approach to vegetable gardening. I think there's been a lot of books on organic gardening and Mm -hmm. like techniques. Mm-hmm. But I tried to do, I tried to talk about mindset in this book quite mm-hmm. a bit, and mm-hmm. I guess philosophy and kind of freeing your mind. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that sounds a little right. hokey, but just trying to get people to just go out there and, um, and try things and play. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. um, it makes it too. where, you know, once the garden is, is growing, I mean, it feels... Abundant, you know, it yeah. feels like a space of abundance rather than a mm-hmm. space of order. Yeah. Which for some people is, is pro- that's where the kind of, mm-hmm. you know, I know there's going to be people who are not into this approach, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but for other people, I think it can be, um, like you said, more soul fulfilling to have this place of just abundance that you have a hand in taking care of. The other piece of it, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, is um, hearkening back to indigenous cultures and their agricultural practices. So, you know, thinking about the way that we've been growing food, and and I don't mean in any way to malign agriculture, but the way that we've been growing food since the Industrial Revolution is a particular way and a particular approach to growing food. And if we can Look back at the way that people grew food, um, you know, before those times and look at cultures from all over the world and see how they are growing food. There's a ton of wisdom to be gained from those practices, um, you know, before people were using chemicals on their um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, inorganic or synthetic chemicals on on their gardens and things. So. You know, there's a lot of wisdom out there that has been maybe disregarded for a few decades, and I think mm-hmm. people are starting to to see that now. You know, there's um, the the word regenerative gardening, you know, that's becoming a lot more common now. And it's really about, a lot of it is, and permaculture too. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that are looking back, uh, or not, not always back, but looking at um, indigenous growing practices to learn from and um you know there are sometimes people who had it figured out and and then their approaches got disregarded so anyway i do talk about permaculture um Mm -hmm. and what is involved in in that as a practice i talk about some um indigenous american practices The the Big one that people always talk about, but it's such a good example, is the Three Sisters Garden, Mm -hmm. where you're growing three plants together for the mutual benefit of all, Mm -hmm. um, the corn, the beans, and the squash. And so that is a really good just... Yeah. lesson. <laughs> it's, it? it's a typifying, typifying that approach. Um, there's a quote in the book too from Robin Wall Kimmerer. In her acclaimed book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer describes the difference between colonizers and Native American ways of thinking about growing food. When the colonists on the Massachusetts shore first saw indigenous gardens, they inferred that the savages did not know how to farm. To their minds, a garden meant straight rows of single species, not a three-dimensional sprawl of abundance. So that's really the, you know, the kind of difference in in mindset of Mm -hmm. um, something that's going to be productive is going to be, you know, regimented and orderly. That was the mindset coming in. But what was already there was the sprawling three-dimensional abundance. And so
1: mm-hmm.
2: what I like to create in my garden and what I'm trying to you know, encourage others to create is that sprawl of abundance. And that three-dimensional aspect comes with growing polyculture versus you know, monoculture.
1: Well, I love this um, part of your book too, Designing Gardens to Benefit Our Mind, Body, and Spirit. It's so inspirational to read. Can you talk more about this? Sure, yeah. You know,
2: gardening, there's a, there's a lot of talk about gardening therapy. I think a lot of people during the pandemic really, you know, tapped into that, um, what gardening can do for your well being, And so a lot of the book talks about that, you know, and really talks about the benefit of gardening and particularly vegetable gardening or food gardening. Not just for the actual end product that you eat, which does is nourishing to your body, but the process of interacting with nature and um, touching the soil, and you know, walking barefoot through your garden—that those are things that are beneficial to your body, mind, and spirit as well. With the design, you know, for me personally, the straight regimented box approach isn't as nourishing to my creativity and to my mind. And so I talk about different designs that you could employ instead of those conventional approaches. One of the designs that I love, and there's, I found an example um, of a gardener in Wisconsin, and we, Derek actually went up and photographed her garden, and it's I'm just obsessed with her garden, but it's a it's a big spiral and it's just absolutely beautiful. I think people are um, maybe familiar with the herb spiral, which is kind of a technique of of growing herbs kind of in like this almost cone shaped, you know, spiral down. But this is a garden where it's just rather than laying it out in rows or rectangles, she laid it out in a spiral, and it is just it's just really inspiring to me. And what I love about it is that you can actually get into the garden, you know, mm. so you can walk into the space. Like if you think about a spiral, yeah. and it's not a huge space. She lives in a house in an urban environment, so it's not a large space. But she was able to construct it where you can actually like walk into the garden and get to the center of it. Um, and I love that, and it really harkens the idea of walking meditation or moving meditation. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, I talk a little bit about the spiral as a design and I also talk about a labyrinth as a design you know you need a lot larger space for that but I just wanted people to see that to be inspired by it because Mm -hmm. what's so great about that is you getting inside of this pattern and getting inside of this this space and you can actually kind of breathe and um, clear your mind a little bit when you're doing that so I like thinking about your garden design for that as well you know in the winter early spring you're not going to be surrounded by plants but by the time it's in summer you're actually going to be walking into you know this space that will kind of surround you and surround you with nature and that is really helpful to me you know Mm -hmm. um, to have that in my own backyard you know i love to go out into the woods and hike and love to visit big beautiful gardens but I want to have a space like that that I can go to you know morning noon and night in my own house too so Mm -hmm. just like creating the space of abundance that you can actually like get into is is part of what I'm thinking about with design and that can be done again if you know if you prefer a more structured approach you can design spaces with those structures and that that can feel a little encompassing too there's some examples of that Mm -hmm. in the book as well. So that's a little bit of uh, designing for the mind, body, and spirit. Yeah, there's a a lot of different gardens Mm -hmm. featured in the book. And I think a lot of gardens that people wouldn't necessarily picture Mm -hmm. when they think of a food garden or a vegetable garden. So I'm excited to share that with people just because I I want people to know that it
1: doesn't all have to look one way. Yes. Like one year, I kind of... It's a big rectangle out there, and had the main circle be. I built it around my bird bath. Because mm-hmm. when you think about country life and being from the south, you're going to see that cement bird baths, mm-hmm. and it is going to have that cement cardinal in there. <laughs> How many times have you seen that? Yeah. So just as I love it, an homage uh-huh. kind of to my great grandmother. Yeah. From Mississippi, built it in a circle around that. And kind of English garden a little yeah, bit, I guess. It's I love that. super structured, but all this was zinnias. Oh, that's perfect. Little cute little candy tuffers, and then all these were like taller zinnias. Uh-huh. And just a little bit of food in this. It was mostly flowers, mm-hmm. but it sure was pretty. Gosh, I had more pollinators and But visitors. the birds loved it. The pollinators love it. Yeah. Yeah. And like you were talking about, I can go out there, and maybe I just want to poke around maybe I just want to think about my day Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe I've got 30 minutes and I can just walk around that garden and I always feel better for it. Mm-hmm. I think it also helps with if you're in your garden and you're
2: walking, you're enjoying the space and you're walking through the space, kind of, you know, clear your mind a little bit and it allows you to observe a little better too. So I think that mm-hmm. having that time to kind of walk in and get in there, mm-hmm. it makes you see things more. It makes you see maybe beneficial insects that you didn't know were there. Yes. It can make you see Problems that you might not have noticed because you weren't actually getting in the garden. You were just viewing it from afar Yeah So I think there's a a lot of a more intimate relationship Mm -hmm. that way with Mm -hmm. your garden that can allow you to actually Be a better gardener, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, if that's a thing Um, Absolutely to just be a better observer of of this ecosystem and see what's going on and Mm
1: -hmm. and then
2: become a better steward of it, too
1: Yes Another part of the book is connecting to ancestry in place through seed selection and growing practices. The seed selection and ancestry. Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. It's not something I think that's talked about
2: that often, but there are so many... People are excited about heirloom seeds for sure, but I think there's a lot more to it than just um, growing seeds because they're heritage seeds you know i think there can be an actual connection to your own personal heritage that you can find through um, choosing to grow certain plants or certain varieties of plants it could be your own personal heritage it can be some uh, you know heritage that you're interested in maybe it's because of a certain um, type of food that you're interested in cooking Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a lot of more information out there now about the um, source of some of these seeds and there's so many seed companies available or seed companies that are um, accessible now um, because we have the internet and we you know there's um, so many interesting um, smaller seed companies in the south um, southern exposure seed exchange is one that is just so great for you know, if you want to grow heirloom varieties that are from the South and a lot of the stories are told there and it, and it represents all different parts of the South, you know. Um, so that's a good connection to, you know, your, your sense of place. I think there's there's also companies that specialize in seeds that come from a certain lineage, you know. there's I learned through research in this book about a seed company called True Love Seeds. And um, they're really interesting. They have whole collections around um, heritage seeds. So they have an African diaspora collection, they mm-hmm. have a Syrian collection. Um, so they just have really interesting um, stories around these seeds and where they come from. I've n- noticed somebody should create a Ukrainian collection because there are so many seed varieties that when you start reading, you know, the descriptions are Ukrainian. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there's, you know, there's several Ukrainian tomato plants. Mm -hmm. And I mean, how Mm -hmm. hard does it have to be to grow tomatoes in the Ukraine, you know? And I don't know. For Mm -hmm. me, it makes me think about the resilience of these people who have been growing these plants in a harsh climate, you know? But that's what the stories really are about, are people, you know, how did people start growing tomatoes in climates like that, you know, it's, it's the experimentation. I mean, they had to experiment they had to do it over, you know, a long time. It didn't just happen in one season. So anyway, I think there's just a lot of really interesting stories and things that you can learn about your own ancestry or about different cultures around the world by starting with the seed, you know, that they grew. One of the examples I gave in the book, and this isn't a particular variety necessarily, but I have Irish, you know, heritage, and so I was like, I'm going to grow potatoes to know more about my Irish heritage or connect with that. And I started researching more about the Irish potato famine, and you know, I didn't really know that much about it to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. So as I learned more, I learned more about the politics around that and what was actually happening in that time period. Um, was a lot more complicated than I already had known about. So I think whether it's growing a a particular um, variety or just growing a particular plant to learn about its story can I think be really helpful to
1: understand a lot more of the history and culture of the world we live in. I ask you pretty please if you would share a recipe. Mm -hmm. So I decided to share carrot top
2: pesto. And the recipe for this is actually in my first book, Vegetable Gardening Wisdom, but I have it here um, as well. And this is just using the whole plant. I found that once once you've grown the plant, you know, you spent the time and the energy um, to grow this thing, you don't want to waste it, you know. You, and so um, I've realized that there are parts of plants that we waste all the time. You know, a lot of times when you grow or when you buy carrots at the store, the tops are already cut off. Yes. Um, but those tops are valuable. They're, they're very tasty. Um, carrots are related to parsley. So the tops of a carrot plant are similar in some ways to parsley, so you can use them like as an herb, like as a topping. You could, as I'm thinking, you could use it in tabbouleh or something instead of parsley, and yeah. that would actually be delicious. But this is just an example of using it instead of basil or some other
1: herb in a pesto. So what are all your ingredients?
2: Yeah, so it's mostly the things that you would make for a regular pesto, except we're substituting um, carrot greens. So in my recipe, I have one and a half cups of chopped carrot greens. It's good. They can get kind of stringy, so it's good to pre-chop them a oh. little bit before you put them in the food processor. Clove of garlic, quarter cup of chopped nuts, and I will use whatever. You know, I like to use pecans a lot in yeah. my pesto. Um, huh. Pine nuts are so expensive. Yes, and so I often will use um, pecans or walnuts instead
1: What a good idea.
2: Yeah, I mean a little thing of pine nuts would be like $10 and yeah. you can get You know more pecans or walnuts than that plus they're locally grown sometimes, you know, right and then a half a cup of olive oil and a quarter cup of Parmesan cheese and then you make it like you would a regular pesto. I put um, all the ingredients except the cheese in my food processor and pulse it a few times. And then I'll add the cheese and maybe you know mix it in just so that it doesn't get you know completely pulverized. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll add some salt, but I'll taste it first and just see. If I'm gonna use it for um, like a pesto on pasta or something, I might add a little more oil or I might um, keep it less liquidy if I wanna use it for something else like spreading on toast or something. So yeah, it's a good use of something that a lot of people normally would just throw away or compost.
1: So so where do people buy your book?
2: Yeah, I mean, you can buy it wherever you buy books. Um, uh-huh. I think it will be in, um, in any, you know, after that February 28th date, it'll be um, in um, bookstores around town. Union Avenue will certainly have it. Um, Three Rivers Market was really good about selling my book yeah. last time, so hopefully they will um, be able to do that again. I think um, Neighborly Books in Maryville is going to, um, to sell it, so I think it'll be in lots of different bookstores. You can also buy it online. Amazon certainly has it, um, uh-huh. and um, any other, you know, Barnes & Noble and any other bookseller will have it. And if you... Um, Are listening before the February 28th date you can go ahead and pre-order the book and it will be um, shipped to you if you order it online it'll be shipped to you you can also pre-order through a local bookstore so you could go to Union Avenue or somewhere and and ask to pre-order the book so that it's there um, you know right after February 28th that's wonderful yeah and then you have it for your spring planning
1: You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. I want to say thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you're having a real good day. Today, we set the table with a brand new book called The Creative Vegetable Gardener, written by Tennessee author Kelly Smith-Trimble. 60 Ways to Cultivate Joy, Playfulness, and Beauty, Along with a Bounty of Food. More information about this book from Kelly's website, kellysmithtrimble.com and i've also placed links to her website, the book launch at union avenue books, a link for signups for blue stem hollow csa shares, and the podcast of the show and some pictures of kelly on my website at tennesseefarmtable.com and a note kelly or union avenue books do not advertise on this show.